Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Nice to be here. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Akiko, for having me here. Um, Akiko and I have known each other a very long time, it seems. Um, uh, once in a while, uh, one in 10,000 students really has the spark, and Akiko is that person. And uh, you see them everywhere. <laughs> and Akiko kept asking me to come to Comox, and I kept avoiding answering. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally I couldn't avoid it anymore. It's so good to be here. And um, for me, Comox is always uh, a place I stop on my way somewhere else. Um, so I always think of Comox as like the place on the way to Cortez Island or the place on the way to Campbell River. Um, and uh, uh, so it's nice to actually be here uh, for uh, the weekend. And uh, today I uh, got to the place that I'm staying in Courtney. It's in Comox. Where? Royston. Royston. And I walked for a long time on the beach, hence my face is all red. And um, the tide was really, really low. You know when the tide's really low on those beaches there? You can hear all kinds of sounds underneath your feet. It sounds like crabs, but it's more than that. And then you remember, oh yeah, the earth is alive. <laughs> you forget when you're driving and flying and taking ferries. Oh yeah, the earth is alive. Um, so thank you for having me in your community. And I probably, I guess for the past six weeks, have been teaching a text wherever I've been traveling uh, called the Lojong text which is a teaching that comes out of uh, Tibet. And the teaching was really popularized uh, by the teacher and writer Pima Chodron. Uh, if you've ever, ever read any of her books, almost all of them are her commentary on this text. And um, so I thought this weekend, uh, just for fun, uh, we would use this text as a kind of uh, anchor for everything that we're doing. And so I'm going to base my talk tonight on this text. And you have a handout of the excerpts from this text that I'm going to be referring to. When I was teaching, I guess almost two months ago in Kelowna, I started teaching this text. And then I taught it in North Carolina, and I taught it in Wisconsin. And wherever I've gone, I've been teaching it for the last two months. So uh, maybe if everything goes well, we'll finish it. And everybody here will be fully enlightened Buddhas and will go out into the world um, serving people and being really happy about it. What do you think? Possible? <clears throat> so let me start with a story. Um, when I was uh, 15, uh, my uh, family had a very, uh, we were very close friends with another family. And the father of that family, his name was Mort, um, he was doing business with my dad. My, uh, uh, my dad was a, an architect, is an architect. And my dad designed something for him, I don't know what. And they had a big falling out at the end of the project. I guess this is that something that happens a lot in architecture, is that architects don't get paid. <laughs> or it happened in the 80s, I guess. Anyways, my father didn't get paid uh, from this job that he did uh, with Mort. And so our families stopped speaking. 
And this was really kind of uncomfortable because we would go there all the time for dinner. They had a pool and they were the only people I knew who had a, their own pool. And we would go swimming at their house and they had three boys, the same ages as the kids in our family. So anyways, that was it. Our families didn't speak for a couple of years. And um, then one day I was downstairs and my parents were upstairs and the doorbell rang. So I went to the door and I opened it and it was Mort. And his, his eyes were very bloodshot and he had a lot of stubble and he was carrying a brown paper bag and he handed it to me and it was warm. And he looked at me and he said, bagels. So I said, oh, it was very awkward. So I said, oh, thank you. It was a kind gesture coming from a man that I thought, you know, did something really bad. And then he said, is your father home? So I didn't know, should I shut the door or call my dad? Or, so, so I just said, come in. And he didn't want to come in. So he stayed standing there. And uh, I, I ran upstairs and I said to my dad, Mort's downstairs. My dad got up out of bed. He came downstairs. And uh, he stood there in front of Mort. And so I kind of like snuck off to the side so I could hear what they were talking about. And um, my dad said, hi. And Mort said, I'm sorry. And he apologized. And I didn't hear the rest of what they said, but it lasted maybe 10 seconds and then Mort left. And I could tell when my dad came in that he was really moved by this. And I don't think I ever heard a grown-up from such a deep kind of vulnerable place ever say, I'm sorry, at that age. So this really stayed with me forever. This like really seared in my memory. A man in his 50s, early 50s, uh, genuinely apologizing. To another man, no less. Not like to your spouse for saying something stupid, you know. So, that's going to be our image for our evening tonight. Um, two months later, uh, Mort found out he had cancer and he died within a year. So at the time he apologized, he never knew that he was ill. And right after that, he found out he had cancer and he died really, really fast. So I always wonder what was going on for him. Might, did he know deep down that his time was up? You know how sometimes you know before you even know. So um, this quality of the heart uh, really impressed me. And one way of reading the story is, of course he should have apologized. But most of the time, we don't. We keep our resentments, we hold a grudge, and we build up plaque in our hearts and in our bodies and in our minds. And that plaque influences our behavior, influences how we perceive other people, and of course influences how we perceive our own sense of self. So, I thought that we should study a text that talks about how to train our hearts. And the whole uh, process of this teaching is the assumption that our hearts lean towards self-centeredness. And so we need some training in order to wake up from the momentum of selfing, the momentum of pivoting around me all the time. Because if you're always thinking about yourself, the world is only gonna be as big as yourself. Because that's the prism or that's the lens through which you look at everything. So if your self gets really narrow, because you're just thinking about your small self, because your heart is so small, then the world is that small. The world is as big as your heart. So, uh, the Lojong text is a text that trains our attitude. 
this text was developed over a 300-year period, starting in 900 of this era. Um, it came from a Bengali master named Atisha. Some of you who have studied uh, Buddhist literature might know the name Atisha. And Atisha's teachings have antecedents in Sumatra and in India. <clears throat> the term Lojong is usually translated uh, as mind training. So in Alan Wallace's translation and Trungpa Rinpoche's translation, it's always talked about mind training. Um, Norman Fisher's translation of it is training and compassion, which I really like a lot. Um, if I were to translate it, I would call it training our attitude. Because really, when you try and unify this idea of training our attention with the matter of a heart that actually so easily closes, um, what really uh, brings them both together is our attitude. Our attitude. Our attitude really makes a difference. So, the text is divided into seven different sections. And in each section, there is a theme. And then those themes are subdivided in terms of practices that you can undertake in order to embody or activate the teachings. And if you add up all of those practices, you end up with 59 practices that are very concise and pithy, and they're often called slogans, 59 slogans. And I call them bumper stickers, because I think they're like 59 bumper stickers. And when I was teaching in Kelowna uh, with this foundation called the Enso Foundation, I thought, because they're a charity, that one way they could raise money is they could actually create bumper stickers. And I did retranslate some of this text into bumper stickers. Um, and you'll see as we go into this text that they really do sound like bumper stickers. And wouldn't it be great if you were like walking along in the morning, you know, feeling sour because you haven't had your coffee yet or whatever, and someone said something idiotic to you at work yesterday, and you were all like spinning. And then, you know, someone drove by and the bumper sticker said, you know, wake up. <laughs> and you'll see all the other bumper stickers. So, the idea of the text is to teach you uh, how to still your reactivity and find calmness. And then, in the space of relative calmness, so not perfect <laughs> idealized calmness, but in relative everyday calmness, to start sowing the seeds of compassionate action. And this is our job as yogis. This is our job. Is on the one hand, we need practices to teach us how to settle. And then in that space of calmness, in that space of being able to look more clearly, to have practices that motivate us to do something, to take action, to take compassionate, creative, loving action. And the name for this in the text, and I'm going to get into this a lot more tomorrow, is bodhicitta. So let's say that bodhi, bodhicitta. So etymologically, this, this is a Sanskrit term. And the term bodhi comes from the root bud, which is where you get a term like buddha, which means to awaken. It's a verb, to, to, to be awake, to awaken. So it's like you're in a daydream, you wake up again. You're in a delusion, you wake up again. And chitta, chit means um, attention, consciousness, thought. Um, it also can refer to like one spirit. Um, and when you put them together, um, bodhicitta is the attitude of being awake the spirit of being awake, the attitude of being awake. And I like to think of it as awakened attention. And bodhicitta was a term that evolved after the death of the Buddha, as Buddhism started to spread 
through northern India into Tibet and various other places. And slowly over time, the idea of nirvana or moksha or uh, individual enlightenment was replaced with this idea of bodhicitta. So, the idea that the individual has some kind of spiritual or mystical experience that creates what we call an enlightenment moment was slowly replaced with this idea that the most important thing is bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is when someone's practicing, they start to, uh, a, a, a feeling or an aspiration begins to dawn where they want to help other people. That your awakening is based on other people's awakening. Because if we're not as separate as we once thought, then I can't be awake if you're not awake. You see? I can't be free if you're not free. So it's like you're walking towards the door of enlightenment, you put your hand on the handle, you're ready to open the door, and then you look back and you're like, wait a second, what about all these other people and trees and cities and climate change? And capitalism, I mean, extractivism, right? I have to do something about this. So then you realize, oh my God, this whole spiritual paradigm I've been in, where I want to be enlightened, is incredibly self-centered. <laughs> what have I been doing? Well, according to this text, it's really good what you've been doing. You've been getting still and going on retreats and getting calm. Now you have to do something. Now you have to do something. Because there are other people. And species. So if we say awakened attention, the question is, well, what does that actually look like? What is awakened attention? An awakened attention is compassion. It's wanting to be free, but it's also realizing that we're deeply, deeply connected with other people. Even the people we don't like. <clears throat> I'll talk for a while, and then we'll have a, time, we'll have a break, and then we'll have time to talk. Is that, is that okay? Unless you feel like there's something so burning that I need to get back to. So, <clears throat> the first form of bodhicitta is called relative bodhicitta, which is compassion. And that's the work that we do for other people. So the first aspiration is, I want to help other people. And this aspiration can be just waking up in the morning and saying to yourself, I hope that the work I do today is really good for other beings. What a different day. Usually we wake up in the morning, we're like, oh God. <laughs> and that's like our prayer. <laughs> Here's what the Dalai Lama says in his commentary on this. Speaking of my experience, he says, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. When I think about it, I cannot find in myself any especially good qualities except for one small thing. That is the kind heart which I try to explain to others and which I do my best to try and develop within myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry. I've actually seen him get angry. But in the depths of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I can really practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. <laughs> Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. So let me underline one, one thing he said. Even though I still get angry, 
I don't hold a grudge. So even though I still get upset, even though I still get distressed, even though I get irritated, it doesn't grow roots in me and create the plaque that I was talking about earlier. Maybe Mort did a really stupid thing when he didn't pay my dad. I don't know the story. Or maybe my dad did a really dumb thing. I don't know the story. I mean, my dad tells the story that Mort, you know, that he was the victim of Mort's you know, scheme. But maybe it was the other way around. I don't know. I was only 15. How could I know? But that's not the point. The point is, after everything falls away, who is holding the grudge? All that stuff that's happened to you, you know, that you've been angry about. At the end of the day, when you hold the grudge, you're just adding pain on top of pain. So, our practice is relative bodhicitta, which is compassion. In other words, how to be awake for other beings to help them wake up in the relative world. And how you do that is with a compassionate kind, the Dalai Lama calls it a kind heart, a small kind heart, which you cultivate over time. And this is a theme that we're really gonna explore this weekend, that we have to train, we have to cultivate this. You can't just read about it, you can't just think about it, You can't just do an ayahuasca ceremony and then your heart is now transformed. You have to train over and over because our bodies and our brains change through repetitive training. They don't change in one moment of mystical insight. That's just an experience. And experiences are fleeting. We all know that, right? We've all had like an incredible experience and they don't always completely change us. It, the seeds have to keep being reworked in the field. So, then there's absolute bodhicitta, which refers to freedom from all attachment, which is called emptiness, which basically means nothing, nothing belongs to I, me, and mine. And these are the two different sides of bodhicitta. One is cultivating compassion. So compassion is like one side of the practice. And the other side of the practice is starting to see that you can't cling to anything because nothing belongs to you. Nothing. The house you own does not belong to you and it doesn't belong to the bank either. The grudges you hold, they don't even belong to you either. So what we're trying to discover is our natural radiance and our innate responsiveness. Our natural ability to be radiantly awake and how that manifests as being responsive. So it's not like you relax and then you're like all blissed out and you're like, oh yeah, man, I've like totally reached it. <laughs> not at all. Those people are terrifying actually, because that's very, very rigid. Our practice is flexibility, is that we're totally responsive to what's happening moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. And it has nothing to do with our ideology. It has to do with what's happening in the situation in front of us and how we respond. That's what it means to be awake. Spontaneous, it's not philosophical. So, in yoga practice, we see these two sides really clearly. On the one hand, we have a movement practice, and the movement practices are designed to increase the range of our vocabulary so that when we have movements,
that become repetitive, that we are very good at over time, we shake things up and we change them. So for example, if you've been practicing one series of yoga and you've been doing the same series every year for 10 years, that's not an evolving practice. That's one practice times 10 years, you see. An evolving practice is that the practice goes into your vocabulary and moves things around so that we're constantly waking up different patterns in the body so that we perceive ourselves in new and different ways in space. If you just do the same downward facing dog every single day for 20 years, not only will it destroy your joints but, and wreck your hamstrings, but it will teach you how to be very, very trained in that one movement. Great. Great. But if we talk about practice as waking us up, that's not waking us up. Waking us up is taking that movement and then doing stuff with it. You see, and we're going to explore that tomorrow in a lot of detail. Okay, so that's one side of practice. The other side of practice is stillness. I used to call it meditation. Uh, now, especially after working with teens a lot in the past couple of years, I, just, I call it stillness. Because people have so much baggage with the word meditation. So I just say, okay, now we're going to do stillness practice. People are like, okay, great, I really need that. And if you say, I'm going to do meditation, then everyone goes into like their meditation thing. We're settling in stillness, relative stillness, of the body and breathing. And when our breathing settles, our nervous system down-regulates. And our attention becomes much more stable and balanced. We find we can pay attention for a longer period of time to what's happening moment to moment to moment. And then when that happens, our awareness starts seeming to be a much wider sky or field in which sensations and images and feelings and thoughts flow through. Um, if you want to understand your mind, and if you want to understand the plaque in your heart, you should sit still. Everybody knows that. Sometimes in your life, you try everything. Getting advice, complaining to friends at the bar, trying a new job and then another job, buying stuff, selling stuff. Someone told me last night, um, she was telling me that she just got this car that we were driving in. I said, oh, great car. She says, yeah, like a couple of years ago, I just sold everything I had. <coughs> and then I realized I really needed a car. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about renunciation, what we really want to renounce is our clinging. I call this non-addiction. Like what's non-attachment? It's non-addiction. It's not being compulsively driven into the same patterns of attachment, of reactivity. When I first started meditating, I studied with a, a guy named Joseph Goldstein, who's an incredible, incredible uh, Vipassana teacher. And he said to me once, it's very simple, but it's not always easy. That's it. That was the advice about meditation. You know when you have to hear something a thousand times? Meditation's really, really simple. Follow your breathing. But it's not always so easy. You sit and you notice how sensations change and thoughts change. Um, and our practice for the first few years is just trusting 
that your body can breathe and you can get out of the way. There's two years of practice right there. Just sit still until your body is doing everything. And then um, stuff happens in your life and uh, you're not afraid. You can relate to it because there's more stability because you've become a mountain. Snow still melting, mountains still changing, fluid still moving down the mountain, but you're a mountain. You're unmoved even though you're moving. And uh, you never get used to violence. And that's the key ingredient of bodhicitta, is a person who never gets used to violence. You see things that are distressing, and you get distressed. You see things that are painful, and you feel the pain. But all of that is motivating instead of overwhelming. Because now you're a mountain. So bodhicitta is a practice for depriving structures of violence of oxygen. Depriving them of oxygen. If the structures of violence are inside of us, we have to create conditions where they can't get more oxygen. If the structures of violence are outside of us, we need to do things so they can't get oxygen. <clears throat> the way we do that internally is seeing where we're rigid and softening. And the way we do that externally is making art and having friendship and collaborating and building community <clears throat> and reading books. So, <clears throat> I didn't mean to spend this long defining what I... I mean by bodhicitta, but we're going to talk about it all week, so I hope that that's clear so far. So, what I want you to come away from is that bodhicitta is an embodied practice that's active, and one half of it is doing something, and the other half of it is settling. Just feeling your breathing body, and feeling how your body breathes, just like forests breathe. <clears throat> if you turn to your text, actually, can I have a copy? Please, Does everybody have a copy? And you go to section uh, six. You'll see that section six is called the discipline of relationship. If you look at the italics for the other points, you'll see that the, the italics are like an umbrella term that describe what you're working on in that section. So section three is about taking bad circumstances and turning them into your practice. Section four is about making your practice the center of your life rather than a thing you do on weekends. Point five is how to assess what's happening in your practice and then how to extend it into your life. And section six, which is what we're going to explore this weekend, is the discipline of relationship, which runs from line 23 to bumper sticker number 38, which is on the other side of the page. And the first point you'll see is coming back to basics. Coming back to basics. <clears throat> so uh, traditionally, there are three basics. 
The first basic is intention. The second is action. And the third is balance. So what are the basics? That all the time we should clarify our intentions. We should see if we're really putting them into action. And we should notice our balance. And I'm going to suggest tonight that our balance is really about our attention. Is our attention balanced? Like, what ha what's your attention like after you're Google searching for an hour? Can you sit down with someone and have a conversation? Yeah, it's pretty fragmented, isn't it? I notice this a lot. Um, because I really like reading books, and I also spend a lot of time online, or on my computer even. And I notice that when I get off email, and then I go have some tea, and then I go open a book, my eyes don't follow the sentences very well. They move around the page, you know, because my attention's not balanced. So this is a reminder that your intentions, your attention, and your actions are very much interconnected. Like, don't we know this? When our attention is really loopy, our intentions are like in the back, back seat. And sometimes when our attention is really, really clear, our intentions are really, really clear. So you need to refine your intentions. If you tend to lie, it creates an environment when you have a harder and harder time telling the truth. Um, a few years ago, uh, two students uh, in our community, uh, or sorry, one student in a couple had an affair. And these were like <clears throat> really good practitioners. And one of them had an affair. And they both asked me to support them in the process of healing around this affair. And so I said to each of them, I don't judge you for having the affair. I don't care. Sometimes people have affairs and it's like the best thing ever for both of them. Sometimes people have an affair and the betrayal kills, the, kills everything. But the only way I will support you is if you tell the truth and you don't lie. Okay? So you've had an affair. I don't judge you for the affair. But from now on, I'll only work with you if you don't lie. Because if you keep lying, you'll never get your intention clear, right? If you keep lying and you have to decide, should I stay or should I go? Should I bring this up? Should I not bring you? You can't ever be in an honest place because you're maintaining something that's dishonest. And if you're not honest, others won't be honest because you'll create a culture of dishonesty. If you, have a, if you uh, are in a power position in your workplace and you're not acting honestly, then your employees won't be honest either. Because everyone feels it. And then you're living in an unrealistic world. Padmasambhava a great uh, Indian master said, Though my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. Have you ever ground barley? I haven't. I don't know. But I do grind oats all the time to make pancakes. Can you see a grain of oat flour? after it goes in the Vitamix. It's pretty, it's pretty fine. 
So listen to what he's saying. So he's a meditation master, Padmasambhava. He has this really big view, right? Really open mind, like a big sky. But his attention to the law of cause and effect is so fine that it's like noticing one grain of oat flour. It's ethics. Yeah? Noticing how when you do something, it has, a, it has a consequence. So you need to really pay attention to what you're doing. Because it's always creating a culture. Everything you're doing creates a culture. How you enter a room. How you take off your shoes. How you greet people. One of the teachers that's really inspired me, his name is Shinru Suzuki. He died in the 70s. Uh, he brought, he's one of the people who really brought Soto Zen to America and uh, created um, uh, many centers uh, in San Francisco that are still running. The first large Zen monastery in, in the United States. Anyways, when he died, um, his wife Mitsu she kept living at the Zen Center in, uh, on Page Street in San Francisco for 20 years. And apparently, uh, every day, she would wake up in the morning and she would offer water uh, to her late husband. There would be a picture of him and there would be a ritual of offering water. And then there would be a meditation bell and she would ring it three times. After that, she would wash her hair. And then she would go downstairs into the courtyard and she would say hi to all the new flowers and bugs. Literally, hello to each one. And someone asked her once, uh, why do you say hi to all the flowers and bugs? And she said, uh, they're my friends. So her husband, Shinru Suzuki, who was the head teacher, he taught through formal practice. But she was teaching everybody through informal practice. Her ritual every morning was to pour the water, wash your hair, ring the bell three times. And what does that do? It clarifies your attention. So, we're not going to go further tonight. We're going to keep going tomorrow. But this is the line that I want you to memorize. And the line is the basics. That's it. Practice the basics. If you want a bumper sticker, like if you have a car and you don't, because we're in Canada, we're like not as into bumper stickers as they are in the States. If you go to the States, like everyone has a bumper sticker. Um, your bumper sticker would be just practice the basics. And you know where you could put it? On your dashboard. <laughs> to remind you, practice the basics again and again and again. What are the basics? Settling your attention. And noticing your intentions. Noticing. And when you slow down and have more mindfulness in the day, when you're more in touch with your breathing during the day, It'll change the kind of decisions you make. If you wake up in the morning and you ring three bells, and you listen to them, don't just ring them and then like get on your phone. <laughs> it's like, I have an app for that. <laughs> um, and then go into your garden. I'm in a phase right now with, with my wife where our garden has suddenly expanded. So when I go into the garden, it's just like really stressful. <laughs> There's like more than we can do. So I'm excited to pass that phase. But everything has to be watered just right right now because everything is really small. But if you have a garden that's a little bit more established than that, then you should go into the garden and uh, say hi to everything. Especially the new things. Because they're not separate from you. That's you. <laughs>
to feel that in your whole body. I read a fabulous article this week. Uh, it was written in the early 80s. It was a Navy. Uh, uh, it, it's written by a scientist who was in the US Navy. And his research was to travel as an anthropologist and find communities of indigenous groups that navigated without the use of any equipment or charts. And we're still doing it. And what he discovered was a group in Micronesia and um, they traveled hundreds and hundreds of kilometers by canoe in open ocean and almost always ended up at exactly their destination. And he spent a lot of time with them trying to understand how they navigated because when, they, when he asked them how they navigated, they couldn't explain it because they've never had to explain it before. So he would go for months and months with them on these trips. And the way it worked is they would get in their canoes and they would be aware of their relationship to what he calls emergency islands. Okay, so for example, if you're heading from Denman Island to Savory Island, you'd be heading pretty much north and you'd be aware of emergency islands, which are islands, if anything happened, you'd be able to get to really quickly. And the way they were aware of emergency islands was that they knew that birds never travel more than 20 miles away from a piece of land. So when the stars faded and the sun came up, they would pay attention to birds. And if they couldn't see any birds, they were too far away from the emergency islands. But still, he couldn't understand how they navigated. And they had a very peculiar practice. So what they would do is, while they were traveling, so you have to picture this, okay? Has anyone here ever traveled on water at night? Okay, it's, it's pretty wild. So when I was a kid, we did a lot of canoe trips. So, so here's what they would do. They'd be paddling, it's nighttime or daytime, but picture nighttime. You're in a canoe, you're moving along in the water, stars are moving, islands, water moving alongside the canoe, sounds, different colors in the water, reflections, maybe the moon or not. And every once in a while, they would lie down in their canoes and make their bodies really, really still while they were in their canoes. And when they got really still, they could feel the islands moving. And because of how the islands were moving, they knew where they were in time and space. This is how they navigated. So then, as a researcher, he couldn't really understand this. So he drew a picture and he triangulated where they were at different areas. Here's the emergency island. Here's the island of origin. Here's the destination. And they couldn't understand his maps because his maps were bird's eye view maps. Cartography is a bird's eye view map. It works and you get used to it once you've been introduced to cartography. Once you've been introduced to a bird's eye view once you've been introduced to aircraft. But they didn't understand his maps because they've never thought in terms of the paradigm of a bird's eye view. I could tell you more about this amazing article I'm kind of obsessed with. But this totally relates to training our minds. Is that sometimes when things get difficult for us, we go up into the bird's eye view. We go up to the control tower and we look down at an image of our body. We look down at an image of our life. We look at the movie of me and we try to control it somehow. These practices 
are teaching us how to be more indigenous in our own bodies. Which is, oh yeah, you have a living body. Like today when I was walking on the beach and I was like, oh yeah, it's alive. <laughs> how to feel a breathing body. How to feel breathing forests. How to feel a heart that can't let go. If you're still obsessing about someone in your past, you need to look more closely at that. Because you're carrying around energy that you can't use for creative purposes. Because it's still being sucked into the vacuum of resentment. So that's why we're training our heart. And as I said at the beginning of my talk tonight, we're training our heart in the direction it doesn't want to go. We all love the philosophy that our hearts really want to open, but when we look more closely, that's not really how they operate. <laughs> they want to shut down and stay in the known. So we need practices to work against that. And the practice I want you to leave here tonight with is just stay with the basics. Just practice the basics again and again and again so that you can navigate what's really going on in your life. Make your body really still and see how everything's moving around you. This, these Micronesian tribes would lie down in their canoes and when you lie down in the canoe and you're very, very still, the islands that are closer to you move faster. And the islands that are further away from you move slower. And isn't that true? I noticed this flying here in a little beach craft today. Is that you're looking down and the islands that are close to you, they move very fast. And the islands that are further away, they're just moving very slowly. So to feel that more viscerally. So, this is what we have to look forward to all weekend. So we're going to train our hearts in the direction they don't want to go. Why? What else are you going to do? <laughs> what else are you going to do? Buy stuff? 